Hey, good morning. It was the late 1800s when uh, several farms um, began to be connected by roads, and the roads made it easier for uh, them to share their resources to help each other uh, help build irrigation canals. And uh, it wasn't long after the roads began to be connected, connected these farms, that uh, a, little, a little store was built for people to come in and shop and buy feed. Um, you might know this kind of a story. It's kind of an Americana story, isn't it? And uh, as the store became then a post office, and then, and then there was a little mercantile store, maybe some, a place to get some food, and, and pretty soon uh, enough families came to work those places, and there was a school built. And then the school brought, uh, brought a church, and a little church, uh, the first Christian church in the community, built a small building and uh, got some property, and, and pretty soon... People began to come all the time to this little church uh, on, on a Sunday morning. And as you walked in, some people were very dedicated, so they, they built, a, they built some, some seats. that We called them pews. We just use chairs today, but they called them pews. And, and there were pews on each side. And, and on the right side of, of, the, of the church was a small upright piano. And in the center was a, was a table that uh, they used to put their communion elements on. You know, the, 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 the cup and, and, and the bread, and they would put that there. And then they, and as people would walk in, they'd see the outline of the cup and the bread because it was covered by this beautiful white linen cloth that, that was sewn on the edges, and on the very ends, it had, uh, somebody had embroidered or stitched in three crosses on each end. Can you imagine that? Can you see it in your mind a little bit? It's very beautiful. People began to go, and pretty soon it wasn't just a single school. It was multiple schools, and it wasn't just uh, a, 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 a little marketplace. It was a town hall, and then there, was, then there was a police department, and then there was a hospital, and now it's become a town, a, a real city. And over time, over the next 30, 40, 50 years, you, this church began to grow, and they added more to it, and they added more to it, and yet on the right side of the stage was a, a, a little nicer upright piano and there was a, a beautiful table and, and now they had added a giant pulpit. That's, for those of you who are not sure, that's what pastors stand behind so you can't tell what they're doing. Right? And so they had that there and it was, it was great. And everybody loved this church and pretty soon there was not just the first Christian church but there was the first Baptist church on the other side of town and Faith and religion were beginning to grow in this community, in this rural Midwest, now becoming suburban part of America. And everybody loved it. And they thought it was beautiful. And then, and then somewhere around the late 70s, the new pastor came. And he was a little bit edgy because, hey, it was the 70s. And there was all that Jesus movement stuff, and there was all these things happening. And so he came in, and he began to make some changes. And here's what happened. After being there for about three weeks, he gets a knock on the door of the parsonage, right, where he lived. And, and, and he's, it's, it's the head elder and two of the other elders. And they said, sir, we've got some problems. And he's kind of wiping the sleep out of his eye on a Monday morning. Um, we've got to talk to you. Well, come on in. He poured him some coffee. They sat around and they said, sir, some people are talking. Now, code in church, just so you know, when, you, when you're a pastor and somebody says some people are talking, that's usually two people. And because we're afraid that somebody's going to leave or something, we say, oh, I better listen. But here was more than that. 
Some people are talking and they don't like some of the new changes you're making because, you see, you've taken this piano that was on the right side and it was on the right side because that's the hand of grace and we, you moved it to the left side. And, and that, big, that big pulpit that stood in the middle and blocked the whole stage, you got rid of that. You put it out into the lobby. And that table where covered in white linen that represented the beauty of the body and the blood of Christ, you've taken that, that, that linen and you've put it now as a table runner. Hey, men, that's what women put underneath tables. Underneath something is, goes along the edge of the table. In case you're not sure what a table runner is, I only know because my wife told me. And you've put the elements on top and we can see them. And we've always covered them out of reverence. And we uncover them to represent the resurrection. And they had all this stuff and the pastor's like, okay, I hear you, I hear you, I hear you. And, and by the way, just so you know, I've had those conversations with people in the three, three or four churches that I've served as a pastor. They knock on your door on a Monday morning and there's a lot of grunting and, hey, we're concerned. It's very sad and somber, serious tones. And so anyhow, that's what's going on. And so now with anticipation, the people come next Sunday and they walk in and there's the piano. It's on the left side. He didn't move it. And there's the communion table with the white, beautiful runner, that linen cloth that was built by one of the first people in the church still underneath as a table runner. And the big pulpit that they had was still in the lobby. Now people are mad. And he stands up in front of the church. He says, listen, I know that some of you are concerned about the changes in which we are, that we're, we're doing here, and you're worried about it. And, and I just want to give you, I've done some research on this, and I've studied it, and I just want you to know that when this church was built, it was built before electricity was here. And the piano was put over here on the right side because on the left side was a giant window that brought light into the church. And we couldn't see without it. And so we put the piano on this side to protect it. So it wouldn't be sitting in the sun all day. It had nothing to do with the right hand of God. We just moved it over there so that the sun wouldn't warp and distort the keys and the sounds. And he said, and by the way, just so you know, the pulpit that, that, that we stand behind, it was actually a stump in farmer so-and-so's yard, and he blew it out, and that was the big, and he didn't know what to do with it, so he brought it to church, and we hammered on it and made it a podium. He's, and his family been gone for years. They don't actually care. They don't even know that it's in the lobby. It has nothing sacred to do with the church, nothing at all. And just so you know, that when the church was built... There was no fans, no air conditioning, no nothing. And so we built windows that went all the way across. And we were two miles or a mile away from the largest cattle ranch in the area. And the smell of the cattle ranch made flies come. And flies would come in the windows that we opened at night uh, because we needed to cool the place down. And the flies were landing on the communion elements. And so the pastor's wife took a bed sheet stitched the edges of it, embroidered crosses, and put it across that to keep flies off of it. But to these people, they had created a story around their religion. And when their religion didn't, was challenged and pushed at, they were mad. Can I make a confession to you? I'm the same way. I'm the same way. When my religion is pushed at, I get, I get cranky. When my religion is, is, is challenged, I think, okay, now wait a minute. This is sacred. 
And really it's just a bed sheet that has been cut and trimmed and put over. Every church that has ever existed has taken on some of its culture. That's not wrong. It does that in order to reach its culture. And so the first church was distinctly Jewish. The next one in Antioch was distinctly Gentile. And they didn't, they, the Jews, the Jewish church sent Barnabas to go fix them. And when Barnabas got there, he said, I'm not, I'm not touching that. It's beautiful. The Holy Spirit's there. God's there. It doesn't look anything like us. But it's okay. So what does that have to do with Matthew chapter 6? That's where we're at this morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to just look at the first 18 verses. And I was, I'll read it to you this morning. And then um, maybe, maybe we can uh, make some kind of a connection here. Here's what he says in Matthew 6. One, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that, you may be, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. By the way, if you read this text, and you read it out loud, it's almost poetic. He says this, he says, Do this in secret, and your Father who sees, then rewards. There's a rhythm to how he writes this, to how he speaks it. Jesus is talking here. And remember, he's talking to his friends. He's talking to his friends in front of a crowd. He's pulled everybody forward, and they're all standing there. And Jesus sits down and he motions his 12 friends, come closer to me, because this is really for you guys. And I'm talking about how the kingdom of God looks every day for you guys. So come on here. And he's saying to them, beware. Be careful how you practice your righteousness. Let's keep going here. He says this. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There it is again. You feel the rhythm now? It's right there in the text. And then he says in when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, because they think that they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father who knows what you need before you ask Him. Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray like this, our Father in heaven. Do you guys know that? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And if you were a kid growing up, you, you remember that's how they closed off TV years ago. Remember that? And that when they shut down the TV at night, because it went off at like midnight, and they quit broadcasting until like 6 in the morning, and they shut it down, and they would say, at the very end, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And they just kind of added that little sentence there. But go on, and here's what he says. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you also. But if you, everybody should just swallow hard at this sentence. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Uh-oh. Those are some serious words, aren't they? Those are difficult. And, and, and I don't think Jesus was sort of trying to like, I'm just trying to make a point. 
It's hyperbole. I don't really mean it. I think he was actually trying to say something important here. And then he says, and, and, and when you fast, do not look like gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say that they have received their reward. And when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who, but your father who sees in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So I grew up in the church. I've told you that before. It's a very legalistic church. It was very conservative, very fundamental. And in that church, we took these words here and we added more rules to them. And so people would say, and this is how it went for me in church, and maybe, maybe some of you can relate to this. You would get up and you would do some special music. And when I did it, it was always very special. And I'd do the special music that Sunday, and somebody would say, hey, that was really good. And you'd say, oh, oh no, no, praise the Lord, glory to God. Because you certainly could not say thank you as though you were going to take credit from God because God wants it to be done in secret. Don't tell anybody that he gave you a gift. Don't enjoy the grace of God as he pours through. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, all glory to God. And that's how we interpreted these passages. It has nothing to do with these passages, but do you know what we did? We did exactly what the Pharisees did. We added more rules and more rules and more rules, and we make religion harder and harder and harder. One Sunday after, and I, I know that you might find this hard to believe, but once you get to know me, you won't. One Sunday after church, I was so tired of, oh, oh glory to God. Glory. I sang in church and somebody said, oh, that was really good. And I said, that was awesome, wasn't it? And they said, what are you doing? I said, I'm getting my reward now. And they were like, uh, that's not what you're supposed to do. No, I can have it now or I can have it later. This song is getting one today. And they looked at me like, that boy ain't right in the head. And in this text, we read these words. And the Jesus tells us, listen, something is not working right here. What I've asked you to do, the way I've asked you to, to love God and love others, the way that I built the kingdom and the way I built faith, it's just not happening the way I intended it. And he's looking at his friends. He's saying, listen, I'm starting something new, a new way to view God, a new way to understand God. Jesus created a, a reformation in the first century. He took all the things that took place and the way that these Jewish people had experienced God, the way they had treated the law, the way they had treated their nationalism, the way they had treated others, they said, I'm going to change that by creating a new kingdom and a new way. And, he, then he, that's, and so when Jesus says, I am the way, that's what he's talking about. I'm actually going to be the new way to God. This, it's crazy when he said, this cup is my blood, this, 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 this bread is my body. That was heresy to the Jewish people. Because that was never done in remembrance of a person. It was done in remembrance of the Exodus. And there was no new covenant. There was the old covenant. And Jesus is saying there's something different taking place. And as he says to these, his friends sitting in front of him, and to the crowd who's around him hearing, filled with Pharisees, filled with Sadducees, filled with the religious elite, filled with poor people who were curious, filled with sick people who wanted the healing, but filled with his friends who needed to know a different way of relating to God, he speaks these words. 
These words are also in context of the entire Sermon on the Mount because remember what he said in verse 21 of chapter 5, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to see what God is all about. You're not going to see his kingdom. You're not going to understand it. You're not going to know it the way I want you to know it. And God is so generous. He says, I want you to know me. I'm the best thing going. I want you to know me. I want you to know forgiveness. I want you to know love and meaning and purpose. I want all of that for you. And he said, unless your righteousness goes by, goes past theirs, you'll never know it. And I have this, this sinking suspicion that everybody who heard those words scratched their head all at the same time and went, how do we do that? How do we do that? And then he goes into, into the, to the rest of chapter 5 and he says, You've heard it said, but I say unto you. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. And Jesus wasn't saying, I'm going to make it harder. He says, I want you to understand it's about a relationship with me. I had an intention in giving the law, and you've made it this religion. But I'm telling you, it's impossible for you to keep the law, but it's not impossible for you to become friends with me. And so he lays that out for them. And then in chapter 6, he gives a warning, and it starts with this simple word, beware. Caution. Beware. I'm traveling through the airport in, in, um, in Havana, and they speak Spanish. And, I, and I'm saying, cuidado, be careful, caution. And I'm saying, be careful, be careful, be careful, because I've got carts full of suitcases. And Jesus is saying, listen, I've got something that I need you to pay attention to. And whenever the Bible says, beware, we should probably pause long enough to say, what's he warning me against? Because my story that I told in the beginning about a church who took their tradition and called it their religion is true across the world. It's true across the world today. Last week we said, this is going to be out here for the next few weeks. Jesus is the head of this church, not the pastor, not our tradition, not our theology, not our beliefs, not our nation, but Jesus himself will be the head of this church. And we say that not because you don't know it, but because we forget it. And we make other things the head of our church. And, and I said, we're not going to keep this out here for a long time because we have this tendency in our world to, to make things like this iconic. Ah, where's that chair to remind me? You don't need a chair to remind you. Let it sink into your heart. We're just doing this for a little time. And here's Jesus says, beware of practicing your piety before men in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. This word here, piety and practicing, here's what he's saying. You could boil it down to this. Beware. That word means, beware to practice. That word practice means to create. He says, beware of creating a religion whose piety is external. Whose righteousness is external whose righteousness maybe takes the shape of, oh, praise God, glory to God, oh, no, 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 don't, don't thank me. That's external righteousness. I grew up in a church that had a man who stood every Sunday, and he had his little Sunday school pin. 65 years, I've never missed a Sunday. Do you know what that means? I said, yes, sir, it means you've missed a lot of football. <laughs> to which he said, that boy ain't right in the head. It means you missed a breakfast with your family occasionally and you've created a piety. You've created a religion and you're practicing it in front of men. 
When he says, don't let your left hand and your right hand know what they're doing, he's not saying, walk over there and go, okay, you hide. That's not what he's talking about. But that's how it was interpreted for us. You know what we did? We took these words and we made a religion out of them. In the day of Jesus, there were three external expressions of righteousness. You know what they were? Giving, praying, and fasting. Everybody who was in that day understood that Jesus was talking about because this religion that they had created. Because that's how they expressed their faith. I give, I pray, and I fast. And Jesus says, let's don't do that. I've got something different for you. And so we walk through this text. He says, thus, when you give your alms, sound no trumpet. The issue is not if. The issue is when. He doesn't say, listen, if you happen to feel generous some morning and give, he's saying if you happen to feel like that, maybe we don't have to pray about giving as a church. God already told us to do it. It's not an if, it's a when. He tells us, listen, this is a part of how we worship God. It's built in to the very fundamental of how we celebrate God. They gave sacrifices and offerings all through the Old Testament. They, in the New Testament, they gave offerings to support the compassion when there was a famine. One church took an offering and sent the money. That's just what they did. He says, listen, when you do this, and the, act, the, the practice, it's not about the doing, it's about the heart. When you do this, don't sound trumpets, because that's what they would do. They would say, hey, listen, I'm about ready to make a big gift. Everybody watch this. And we translated that to say, oh, we made a rule. Oh, it should be done in secret. No one should know. And so I went to a church that we just put a box in the back and people would just kind of... Nobody saw. Okay, God, do I still get my reward? That's not what he's talking about. Nobody gives presents that way, do they? When you gave gifts to your family, you didn't say, hey, listen, I, I, don't, I don't want to have a reward from this. You walked in and you said, hey, I'm so excited to hand this to you. Because we love each other. Because we're friends. We're connected. And you give gifts with that in mind. And here's what he's saying. Let your gifts come from relationship and love. Let them come from a friendship with God that's meaningful and real. And when you do it, he says, your father sees what is in secret. In other words, your father sees your heart. That word see means to perceive and know. We have a tendency to perceive and judge, don't we? We don't perceive and know. We perceive and think we know. Here's what he's saying. The father actually never makes a mistake about what's going on inside of you. And he sees it. And here, when he sees it, here's what he says. I'm going to reward you. I think it's interesting. That word reward actually is a word that means to separate and give what is appropriate as it's separated. Here's what he's saying. I get that inside of each of you, is a mixed motive. I got them. I'd love to tell you that I am preaching here from a completely pure motive. I'm trying my best, but I just ain't that good. And you came to church here maybe out of a completely pure motive, but maybe not. And what the Father does, He looks and He says, listen, in this new faith that we're establishing, in this new kingdom, I see, and I'm going to pull apart what is polluted. I'm going to set it over here. And I'm going to give you the reward you deserve. 
I'm going to give you the reward that comes from a relationship. And here's what he's saying. Listen, when you practice your righteousness, when you practice your religion, the Father sees and he rewards us from our hearts. That's good news. Because that means I need to work on my heart, not my religion. That means that God gives me something that I can do inside of me as I deepen and build a friendship with him. When you practice, your father sees, he perceives, he knows, and he's able to look at each one of us and say, listen, you had 60% bad motive in that. I'm going to pull that aside, and I'm going to reward the 40%. Because your father sees in secret, and he's a God of grace, and he says, listen, I'm, I'm going to give that to you. Yesterday, my mother-in-law uh, went home to be with Jesus. 95 years old. And we were talking about, uh, my wife and I were talking about it, and I said, you know, it's really easy to judge somebody on how they treated us rather than the character of their entire life. And look at them and say, wow, that person was pretty amazing to a lot of folks. I had an amazing mother, loved her dearly. But she struggled to be a parent to me. But that's not how I judge her. Because inside all of us is this broken piece where our motives get mixed. Fear comes in, anger comes in, shame comes in, pride comes in. And God says, listen, in the kingdom, I'm going to measure things differently. So can I tell you this morning, if you're just on 1% good motives, just on 1%, congratulations. Because the Father says, I see that, and I'm going to reward that. Come on in. The water's fine. Come be a part of what we're doing. And in relationship with God, he says, we're going to turn that to 2%. And maybe over time, that's going to become 10%. And maybe 10% is the best you can ever do. And God says, I'm going to give you that. I'm going to reward that. Because that's just how he is. He's good that way. He goes on and he says, not only this, but beware. He says, when you, when you, when you pray, and I, I think it's important to understand, Jesus wasn't giving us a prayer to pray. He was teaching us how to pray. But we've turned it into a prayer to pray, haven't we? We've turned it into a prayer to pray, so much so that we signed off our TVs all through the 50s and 60s and 70s with it, so much so that when you go to specific churches, they close every service with that prayer. And Jesus actually says, that's not what I'm doing. I don't want you to do that with all your words. And I'm not saying if you do it, it's wrong. He's saying that's not wasn't my intention, to give you words to say. So imagine this. I said, when Marilee and I got married... Marilee, listen, when you talk to me, here's what I want you to say. Oh, Leonard, hallowed be thy name. Now, you know I'm not hallowed and you know my name isn't, but imagine that kind of a conversation. Do you know what that would do? That would make our relationship really weird. And if you did that to your wife, men, sorry to point you out. See, the reality of it is that's not what God's saying. He's not trying to say, listen, I need you to say all these words. And if you find comfort in those words, pray them. We're not making a rule against it or for it. We're just saying that's not what Jesus intended. He's not saying, listen, I need you to say these words exactly, and then you get it. 
when you pray. And he gives us some thoughts. And if you take this entire prayer that he gives us, there's two key thoughts that run through that. The first one is pray as though God is your friend and that your friend is really important. Hallowed God, you're God. You're, I'm not. Wow. But our Father, there's something close. There's, pray as though God and you have a connection. And second of all, pray as though people matter. Forgive us as we forgive others. Provide food. The reason God gives me food is not so I can eat, but so I can give. That's what the Bible says. He, I bless you so you can be a blessing to others. That's why he does it. Not so that I can get more, but so I can give more. And so when we pray that God would take care of us, we're saying, God, take care of me so that I can take care of others. That's, that's how the Eastern mind would have understood this. Not the American mind, but the Eastern mind. And Jesus, by the way, was from the East, in case you didn't know that. And then he says, listen, forgive others. Because if you don't, that's bad form. Because the Father has forgiven you. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, and they were telling me, I cannot forgive. I cannot forgive. You have no idea what that person did to me. Can you feel that pain? That's some very serious pain in somebody's heart because some people have been brutally wounded. And I'm sad for that. And I had a chance to sit down with them and pray with them and say, listen, the forgiveness that God requires of us is not about somebody else, but about his forgiveness of us. We're required to forgive others because we are forgiven. And the longer I live in that principle, the more freedom I have with any wound I have in my life. To be able to say, I forgive you. And I'm free now. I'm free now. As a kid, I used to walk down to Lake Natoma every morning and I'd get out my fishing pole and I'd take my sunflower seeds and my soda and we'd go to, I'd go down there all day long and I'd fish and we'd catch these little bluegill and bass and hardly any trout in that water. But we got the bluegill and the bass and one time I was fishing and a hook went right into my finger. And I remember thinking, that hurts a lot. And the, it was connected to the string, to the line. And every time I tried to set my pole down, it pulled on it. It's like, that's what unforgiveness does. It, we're always connected, always held tight by that unforgiveness. And God says, listen, I love you so much. I want you to be free. And you're never going to find freedom based upon the behavior of another. So find your freedom based upon the behavior of a God who says, I forgive you completely. Forgive one another as I have forgiven you. That's, somebody should put that in the Bible, right? Right there in Ephesians maybe. It's pretty cool stuff. Then he says when you pray. When we teach this, here's what we tend to do. We tend to break down the Lord's prayer into pieces. And we miss the point. That God is not saying, this is how I want you to pray. Always have reverence. Always talk about your needs. Always, Man, I've heard that a zillion times. And I don't think that's what Jesus was getting at. I think Jesus was saying, listen, when you pray, remember, we have a relationship. And that relationship is supposed to be expressed between us and between others. But I did want to share with you a little bit about how I pray. Because it's helpful for me. I have six conversations with God every single morning. The same six. I know it seems a little boring maybe. Here's what I learned. 
I learned in the very first year of my marriage that my wife and I talk about six things and only six. Now you might think that's kind of boring, but the reality of it is, is if you were to break it down, you'd realize that you and your spouse only talk about a certain number of things. Now you might talk about everything else, but if you don't talk about those six or seven things, you're not going to have good communication. And so my wife and I figured this out. If we don't talk about us, we're not going to have a good relationship. If we don't talk about our money, we're not going to have a good relationship. If we don't talk about our schedules, we're not going to have a good relationship. And so we picked what are the six or seven conversations that we're going to have all of the time so that we can talk about everything else. And as we were talking, thinking this through and having this conversation, I went, hey, wait a minute. If that's important for my marriage, maybe that could work for me and God. What if we could have the same conversations every single day? And then I could pray without ceasing from that point on. I could talk to him about anything. And so here's how my day starts. I have a conversation with God about God every day. God, you're great. I love you. You're amazing. Sometimes I read scriptures. Sometimes I just simply worship him. Sometimes I tell him, God, I don't get you at all. This is how big you are. But every day I have a conversation with God about God. Then I have a conversation with God about me. God, I'm kind of afraid right now. God, I'm kind of angry right now. God, I've got some sin that I've been working on and I haven't beat it yet. God, I need, and I just talk to God about my own life. It's called friendship, right? I also have a conversation with God about those I love. My wife, my children, my friends, this church is a part of that conversation now. You are a part of that conversation. I pray for you. I see your faces. Did I talk to God about those I love. Here's the fourth one. I talk to God about what's on God's heart. God wants something done in this world. Wouldn't you agree? Can you, could, you, could we agree that maybe things aren't going as smoothly as he intended when he said, let there be light and said it was good? He might be saying, no bueno. That's no good in Spanish, by the way. Right? He might be saying that now. God has something he wants done. And I say, God, what do you want me to do about that? How do you want me to live in that? How do you want me to respond to that? How can I love someone else? What does love require of me in a world that's messed up? And I talk to God about his heart. I talk to God about my plans. Whether it's my daily schedule, whether it's I'm planning. Folks, I'm supposed to be right now, I'm supposed to be in East Africa. But there's a pandemic that said I couldn't go. When I came back from East Africa, you know where I was supposed to be? I was supposed to be headed to Cuba. Couldn't go. I've canceled trips to West Africa, East Africa, Central America, and Cuba this year. And I've talked to God about every one of those plans. And you know what he said? Those are cute. But I have you here, in this place, in this moment. And I can accept that with joy because I talked to God about my plans. Raise your hand if your life has gone perfectly from everything you've ever thought. (laughs) That's why God says, talk to me about your plans. Bring your plans, bring your ways to me. I talk to God about my heavy burden. Right now, my heavy burden is my wife as she grieves her mother. It may not be that in a week or two. It might be something different. And I just say, God, this is what's heavy on my heart. Those are my six conversations every morning when I sit in front of my father. And as those conversations unfold, sometimes they last an hour, sometimes they last five minutes. Because it's not about religion, it's about a friendship with God. 
And as those unfold, do you know what happens to me? I find myself talking to God about anything and everything the rest of the day because I've anchored myself in these conversations that are about my relationship with him. Does that make sense? He says, when you pray, when you pray. Then he says, beware, and when you fast. In the past, here's what this has been taught to me. Well, there were six or seven different Jewish fasts, and they would go through them all and everything. Here's what what I'm going to say to you. God's worth anything. Anybody disagree with that? So give up something for him now and then. Say, God, I'm going to set this aside so that I can hear from you. I'm going to set this aside because I value you more than a cheeseburger. It's close. God, set this aside because I value, I value. Some of us need to set some things aside for our own sanity. A few years ago, I quit eating sugar, quit drinking sodas, not because I don't love them, because they were killing me. And I value something, value what he's asked me to do more than that. A few years ago, I quit watching the news. Not because I don't want to be informed. I'm in very well informed. But because the longer I watched the news, the more I fought battles and I fought people that were not my enemies. Instead of joining God and loving people. It polluted my mind. And I said, I can't watch that. Here's what I've seen in, in this culture. We get our comfort from the Word of God, but we get our wisdom from Google and Fox and CNN. And something's wrong with that. Something's backwards with that. So I'm going to stop doing that. And I gave those things up, not because I'm holy, but because God was worth it. That's what it's about. Fasting is always about declaring the worth of God over something else. And it's about a friendship and relationship. And so Jesus says, when you fast. Here's what the people in that day did. They fasted not because God was worth it, but because you would look at them and say, wow pretty special look at him fast he looks miserable he must be fasting today he looks awful he must be fasting today every once in a while i'll get up and i got that bed head and my wife will go oh you must be fasting today see the reality of it is this is not about fasting it's not about praying and it's not about giving he says those things are going to happen And they should happen. It's about your friendship with God as you do those things. Be careful how you practice your religion because your father sees and your father rewards. What an exciting time to be East Parkway Church. What an exciting time to have the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and the God of all grace living inside of us. What an exciting time to have a penny or two in our bank account that we could share with somebody else. What an exciting time to have a couple cars that we could say, from the trunk of this car, I'm going to dispense grace to kids who never even heard of Jesus. By the way, those people are all around our culture. What an exciting time to say, I'm going to sign up and pray. And there might be somebody who walks into the doors of this church simply going, I am hopeless. And you pray over them and the God of all hope steps into time and space in their heart and they say, ah, I feel a burden lift off of me. What an exciting time to say, God, you came here to make disciples who make disciples. I'm going to learn how to do it so that I can influence those people that I've just prayed for. Those people. What an exciting time. And that's what God says, you can all do that. 
And that's why we're headed that way as a church, because the warning of Jesus, I hear it loud in my ear. Be careful how you practice your religion. Be careful how you practice it. And Jesus, when he left the earth, he said to his friends, what you've seen me do, you now do. What I've, what I've done for you, you do for someone else. James, the brother of Jesus, translated that pure and true religion is to care for widows and orphans, those in need, those who can't help themselves, those who are struggling. That's, that's, and Jesus is saying, in the kingdom, be careful how you practice your religion. Not as hypocrites, not as pagans, not as Pharisees, but as true members of the kingdom of God. You with me on that? Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us that you would call us and ask us to do and be friends and partners with you in this world, in this kingdom, in this time. Man, what an amazing act of trust and grace you've given us. May we be trustworthy. May we move from the question of can God be trusted to the question of can you trust us, Father? And with moving to that question, would you activate this church in this community and beyond? In Jesus' name, amen.